Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking English teachers this time, live in Wichita, the annual conference for the Kansas Association of Teachers of English. Can you tell that they have the day off? Can you tell? <laughs> so uh, first, let's meet the teachers who are going to be uh, speaking with us on the panel today. They are live up here uh, at the table with me. So first, to my immediate right, introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you teach? I am Nathan Whitman. I am the high school English teacher at uh, Burton USD 369, and I'm also a graduate student at Wichita State University. Going down the line, who are you and what do you I'm, teach? I'm Antica Allen Atkinson, and I teach kindergarten in USD 475. And at the end of the table, who are you and what do you teach? I'm April Pamatiski, and I teach high school here in Wichita. April, Montika, Nathan, thank you so much for being up here. We, we should say we're going to have a fourth panelist come up in the second segment, uh, and we'll introduce her when she comes up. All three of them, as they said, are educators at public schools in Kansas. Well, let's get to our first segment. The theme of our discussion for this, if we want to put a title on it, is this, Teaching English in the Age of Alternative Facts. We basically want to know how, if at all, the increasingly polarized political and cultural environment, or milieu, for you AP teachers out there, how that is affecting your class and students. So let's take as the basis for our first segment an article published just last month in Politico magazine entitled Teaching English in the Age of Trump. It chronicled how English teachers, uh, secondary teachers mostly in this article, but by extrapolation all English teachers, um, how they are feeling the need to adjust their curriculums, modify or add to their canons and reading lists, change up their assignments to adjust for this shall I say, brave new world that we're living in? One high school teacher in San Francisco quoted in the article said he planned to add Shakespeare's Julius Caesar to his curriculum because, as he put it, its themes of rhetoric and political violence felt, quote, distressingly relevant. Others noted how class discussion this semester's of long-taught works like Of Mice and Men and Antigone turned to contemporary political issues very quickly. Steinbeck's novel, for instance, sparked a discussion about the marginalization of rural, white working class people. Sophocles' tragedy prompted to talk about gender inequality, sexism, and national pride. Still, other teachers said with this talking head, insult-driven public discourse style nowadays, they felt it their duty to have kids write and deliberate more. Also, of course, felt more of a burden to model for kids, skillful, reasoned argumentation and discussion habits. Teachers also said that they are more mindful nowadays of the diversity or maybe lack of diversity in their curriculum and said they wanted to bring a broader spectrum of voices into their classroom for kids to read. As this article says at one point, quote, it turns out that the English classroom might not be such a bad place to talk politics as opposed to history or civics class where students tackle political issues outright. Teachers say discussion-based English seminars allow for sensitive conversations by proxy, end quote. That's my introduction. So I turn to the teachers at our table here. Let me ask you this. Have you changed or tinkered with your curriculum or your reading list this year in direct response to political events outside of your classroom? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Give me some examples. Um, I have been very deliberate this year in feeling the burden that I need to teach my students how to navigate the internet. Um, in the past, the research project has really been all about those scholarly journals, articles. At one point, I even had told students, your research had to come from books. What but, are those? <laughs> exactly. 
But I decided this year that the truth was they were going to Google things and that I needed to teach them how to discern the difference between fake and real things on the internet. And I wasn't sure I knew how to do that myself. So I spent a lot of time this summer uh, reading up and researching so that I could show kids how to discern what is a legitimate um, and, and validate, uh, validated site as opposed to um, something that is a blog or, or a blog that anyone can write versus a blog that uh, an expert in the field could have been writing. And so the research project has become how do you validate uh, your research instead of compile all of this into an essay and give it to me in five to ten pages. Uh, Montika, Nathan, what do you, you both said yes uh, pretty immediately. How have your, your curriculums or your reading lists changed in response to political events? Well, at the kindergarten level, what I try to do is introduce books to them that are subject matter that they can have some conversation about. I try to teach them to watch the news, even at five years old, six years old, to be aware of what's going on so when they come back they can talk about things like the hurricane, like the um, earthquakes, the forest fires, those kind of things. I know it sounds small, but for kindergarten that's a big world for them. So I try to find that kind of information to approach it from that uh, aspect. Do you already find that as kindergartners they're already exposed to or aware of or being affected by the, the divisiveness that's already kind of been mentioned? I think so, because we put uh, devices in our kids' hands already at kindergarten, at least an hour a day, they're on a computer. And from third through 12th, that's three to five hours a day, they may be on a computer. So the key is to um, teach them that knowledge so that when they go home, the parents are in their cell phone, they're looking over their parents' shoulder, they're asking questions. Parents don't give them the information, they come back, they ask me. So it's my job to make sure that I'm the one who can give them that information that's critical for them to think about so they can discuss it, but not being opinionated with it at the same time. Yeah, Nathan, what are you thinking? Um, well, following the, um, the election, I decided that um, I had been teaching long enough that um, I knew the content well enough that I should really start varying um, the, the texts that we were looking at in our class, um, books and opportunities for my students. Uh, a lot of the focus in the, um, the textbooks, the recommended coursework follows mostly um, white men and women from around the globe, even though the textbooks themselves have writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or um, Naomi Shiab Nye. And so I made it um, a point that once we get through the concepts, um, kids are gonna explore every little nook and cranny in these textbooks. And for my um, extension readings, uh, my students always read a, a quarterly book um, to not only find books that reflect themselves, but also to explore the library and have some recommended lists. Hey, April, you teach secondary. Uh, so what are the conversations and kind of background knowledge that your kids are coming into school with? Well, and I was just thinking about this earlier. When I was in high school, I really had no idea what was going on, right? We, we talked about kind of a school filter, that a big event might happen and it might, it might bust through that school bubble. But uh, my students walk in the room, not necessarily knowledgeable, but they're definitely engaged. They know that things are happening. I think social media has a big impact on that. Um, they're not necessarily well-informed, they just know that things are happening and they tend to walk in the room with a lot of questions. I have a lot of students that are afraid right now and uh, I feel like sometimes my job is just to create the safe space, the safe zone. You can come in and ask me, I'll tell you if I don't know. When you say afraid, um, why are they afraid? Well, I teach, a, I teach in a, um, a very large urban high school and uh, I definitely have DACA students um, when DACA was revoked, 
it was like a trauma ward the day after, it felt like to me. I was hugging a lot of students who were trying to figure out what their next steps were. Um, I teach at a, a college uh, prep program, and it's, it's hard when those students realize that what they've been planning for is gonna change so significantly. But more than that, you know, I have, I have students of color that are now receiving, um, it's now okay for some kids to say some things that two or three years ago they would not have said. And so they're facing some comments they've grown up, they haven't, this might be the first time that that's ever been said to yeah, them or around them. I mean, within reason, can you give me an example? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Uh, well, I have a lot of African-American students that the past couple of years has been the first time they've ever actually heard some terms derogatorily addressed to them directly, because in the past, it's, that's been a no-no. Like, you don't, that's not okay to say. It's still not okay to say, but for some reason, we have some students that feel like they have some tacit permission now to say that um, and to say those things. My students of color are dealing with more hostility, I think, than they have before. And again, I feel like my job, not just to create a discourse community, but to be a safe, a safe place um, where that's not gonna happen in my classroom or in my hallway. Yeah. Uh, to all three of you, it sounds like just the issues you're raising, um, whether you want it to or not, uh, very, very political or politicized issues are coming into your classroom. And I wonder as teachers, how do you balance uh, being an educator uh, with all your, for all your students and also um, being this kind of de facto political agent, um, whether you intend to be or not? Like, how do you stay an educator, but also, or do you, I guess, to put it more simply, do you feel a responsibility to either engage politically or to stay on the sidelines and not show any bias? Uh, there's no way I could teach and be unbiased, so I'm upfront and then I take some things off the table. Um, in the past, just to use Trump, uh, in the past I used samples of his work and we would approach them rhetorically and analyze. You know, when he was first running for office, I had a number of candidates that I could pick from and we could all look at the language that they used and their, their diction and their syntax and we could explore that. But at this stage, I, can't, I don't feel comfortable doing that because of my own feelings. I also wanna make it a safe place for anyone, even for political views that are different than my own. So um, if we're having a class discussion, part of it is me backing off and letting the students talk to each other and not me not weighing in yeah. so that they're more free and open to say what they think. Yeah, Nathan, you were nodding. Um, yeah, I have a lot of students who do come in with opinions. They hear maybe from those snippets online or um, maybe what their parents have said at home or heard on um, different uh, news sources. And so I always try to find a way to bring it back to kind of what we've maybe been discussing in class, like uh, an example that comes to mind. My juniors are uh, studying American literature and we're just now getting to the Civil War. And so I had a kid bring up the discussion of like kneeling for the national anthem. And so, um, well, I let the kid share his viewpoint and then I you know, asked for other viewpoints and definitely took a stand back. Because um, with my students, I always try to make sure that they know that I'm going to let everyone share their own opinion and that um, there should be no interruptions. And then we try and tie it back to like, what's the origin of, you know, this anxiety regarding kneeling for the flag, for instance. And sometimes we get into other um, discussions like, well, if they sign a contract and the employer says they can't do something, they should think about that. And where does that impend on free speech? And, we get some good productive discourse. Are there tensions within your 
your staffs, with, with your colleagues? I, I, and I have to look at that too, because in my building, they're probably, our population is probably almost 75 to 76% African-American. Your student population. Yes, but there are only two teachers that are of color. So I have to even take, check myself and say, did she say that because she felt that, or did she say that because she has hostility towards me as a person of color? So I have to really come political sometimes and think about it twice and not always react. And sometimes I have to always you know, let someone know that's not a correct way to say it, but it be in a nice way. Let them know I'm always professional. And I always try to make myself be professional first, regardless of how that person interprets it. And then later on, if they want to have a conversation about it, then we can. But I never allow someone to feel they can trump over me as a person by race. Yeah. That entitlement that some people come with today in the classroom environment in the building who are not even aware of the cultural may not even be aware of their biasness. And so just setting that tone straight. Uh, last question to round this segment out. Um, since we're all, you're all English teachers, um, you like questions about books. Um, you like questions about pieces of literature. So I guess my, what I've been thinking of is what book that you know well or that you've taught your kids in the past or even taught this year, um, what book do you think best reflects or sums up this current political moment for you um, or your school? 1984. Animal Farm. I don't have a, a literature book, but a book that I read professionally is You Can't Teach What You Don't Know. And I can't remember who the author is, but that was a pretty profound book. Well, it's, I'll go back to each of those. So April, so the 1984 comparison has been brought up, but I wonder how do your... We were talking last night. There, there, you, you are drawing some interesting conclusions from how your kids are seeing 1984 differently from how you saw it when you read it as a high schooler. Right, so uh, the thing that, that I took away it from 1984 as a, a high school kid, right, is that Big Brother is manipulating uh, everybody in this society and that um, media and technology and that kind of stuff is being used. But my students don't get concerned about that. They really don't. They're so used to uh, maybe being observed I mean, after all, if you think about it, most of them grew up with the NSA uh, doing observations. Um, and so they sort of accept it. That's not the part of the book that scares them. Uh, for them, I think part of what scares them, there's a, I hope I'm not spoiling it for you. <laughs> there's a, It doesn't I, end well. No, <laughs> no. And there's a character in the story who betrays uh, Winston. And, and they're really bothered by that. And they're really bothered that ultimately the government and, and that society win, that Winston caves. And so, and that's their term. But the things that bothered me about it, the manipulation of information, uh, the use of technology, they're not bothered by that at all. And Nathan, you said animal form, so two for two on George Orwell. Uh, what, uh, what conclusions from that book? Um, I always allow my students to kind of do extension research projects so that way they lead the discussions for like each chapter of the book and I kind of let them have free reign of what they want to connect it to so sometimes they connect Animal Farm to like World War II or some of them go directly to the roots and look at the Russian Revolution um, but this last year when I taught it um, I was surprised at how many of them um, like when Napoleon and Squealer keep changing the uh, commandments um, we're tying it into some of the um, changing of like what had been said by the administration in our current um, political environment and 
uh, a lot of them were just really disturbed by how this book written so long ago is still like tying into modern politics. And um, I think it's caused a lot of them to be, want to become more politically active. Um, so some of my seniors last year who most of the time didn't care about politics were suddenly like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing this today and this is unnerving. And then, uh, Montique, this professional book that you read, you can't but, teach what you don't know. Right, and it's about a teacher who's trying to, it, basically empathy. How do you teach someone out of a different culture when you don't understand what the culture is about? And understanding and living in that community and knowing what goes on in that community before you can actually teach those type of students who are different from you. It was pretty profound. We have a new face on the panel for our second segment. If you want to introduce yourself, who are you and what do you teach? I'm Keely Tolbert, and I teach uh, middle school English in the Wichita Public School District. Well, thank you for joining us. You're so this welcome. is our second segment. Every year, the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom tracks the various attempts made by parents, activist groups, school board members, whoever, to challenge books that are used in school. By the end of last school year, so that was the one that ended this past spring, the OIF had tallied more than 320 attempts around the country to ban books, and so that was about 50 more than the year before. And the OIF makes clear that their database is based on self-reporting and that the annual number of challenges and bans is likely much, much higher than their official number. Even so, the OIF listed the top 10 books most challenged in schools in the 2016-2017 school year. Let's see if anyone out there um, can relate to this. So they range from picture books intended for young kids like I Am Jazz, about an 11-year-old transgender girl making a transition from boy to girl. It's actually based on a documentary film. To longer chapter books intended for preteen and adolescent audiences like John Green's Looking for Alaska, a coming-of-age novel with typical coming-of-age teenagery things happening. Uh, five, of the top, five of the top 10 books prominently feature LGBT relationships or discussions of sexual orientation or gender identity. Three of the books apparently contain too much profanity for the complainant. On an episode of No Wrong Answers earlier this year, we discussed a state law in Florida that allows parents and any residents, in fact, to more easily challenge schools' use of textbooks and curricular materials that they find objectionable. They can bring their objections before their local school board, and when an objection is made, the school board is obliged to hold a hearing about their book or material. NPR reports that the supporters of that law cite books like A Clockwork Orange and Beloved as being potentially out of bounds for schools because of adult themes. Censorship can take other forms as well. Writing in Ed Week last month, Christina Bercini, a former middle school teacher and a member of the Standing Committee Against Censorship for the National Council of Teachers of English, says modern-day squabbles over censorship of books and reading material often get dressed up in arguments over what is age-appropriate for children. She says not only do parents often use this line of reasoning, but teachers do as well. She recalls a former colleague of hers who, when she proposed reading in her eighth grade class a child called It, her colleague replied, I'm not agreeing to that. Our students are entitled to a blissful childhood, and they do not need to be privy to that boy's story. Bercini argued in the Ed Week piece that age-appropriate books often are the ones that honor hard realities and bring up issues that need to be discussed. Those were her words. So censorship for uh, Keely, Montika, and Nathan, who are still with us. Uh, in 2017, uh, where, if, where, if at all, do you feel any type of pressure to change, modify, or even if I say censor, uh, what your kids are reading and what materials you are using. Where do you feel the pressure coming from, if at all? Well, at the kindergarten level, our district has a central um, 
librarian person who's in charge of selecting books for the elementary libraries based on reviews from the librarian. So those books are placed there according to the preference of the person who's in charge. And sometimes those books may not look like what our kids need to be reading is what her preference is. Um, and what would you, what, what is your opinion about what your kids need to be reading? I think our kids need to have more books by African-American authors with African-American illustrators in their hands and not just having books in there that are just a common traditional uh, Caucasian top 50 list books to be and you placed on I mean, your, your district is student, student-wise majority uh, African-American or, or minority, and majority elderly, minority. Yes, yeah. yes. And even, our build, even if it's from building to building, it, I think the books on the shelf should reflect the students that are selecting those books. And even the literature that's in our classrooms, um, having that teacher feel uncomfortable teaching that subject or that topic and not skipping that story or choosing to one that more you feel more comfortable with or not knowing enough about African-American literature and putting those books in those students' hands. So, I mean, I guess to, to, to put a point on it then, so you're saying like if you have um, uh, white teachers, white colleagues who might feel uncomfortable teaching a story about a, written by a black author or have a, has a black central character from a, a textbook. And then, so then I guess as, as, as a colleague, how, do you, how would you counsel them or how do you counsel them to, to get over that discomfort? Well, I, what I do is I team up with another coworker who is African-American and I do this, uh, lessons with her class and my class combined, and I to call it Teaching Beyond Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman. Getting subject matter to kids by uh, other people who are not, quote, safe. And I think some teachers feel only safe teaching those two subjects. So when the kids leave elementary school, they go to middle school, that's all they know is Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman. So they go to high school, they don't have any background knowledge of literature, so it's hard for the teacher to cross that line. Well, what do you want to talk about? Let's talk about Martin Luther King. And they only can see the, the good side and the bad side and what of it. And what is, uh, what, what is seen as not safe? Like what, like what, what, what other types of, of authors and books and, and works are you trying to bring in? I think you need to bring in Sojourner Truth. You need to bring in um, books in there about slavery, books in there that are about uh, the revolt of, of how African-Americans were in different uh, battles and different wars, and just teaching them the history of African-Americans that we have in our history, the history that's not in the books. That teacher needs to go out and find that history and bring it back in and put it for the kids to I, see. I want to get the other, I want to get Keely and Nathan here, but just a final question to you, I guess. I, I'm under the impression, just based on hearing you talk, that th there are not a lot of other African-American colleagues in your district. Do you... You feel you're clearly passionate about this, but do you do you also feel, I don't know, burdened by a responsibility to, to be uh, making sure that your colleagues are well? I are try, doing yeah. I try, but then they but the first thing it says, oh, that's Montika's agenda. There she goes again. Oh, you, I'm very you hear that? You hear I'm that? Very yeah, yeah. opinionated. Yes. And I do question, well, why do you just put Martin Luther King, I mean, Martin Luther King in the hallway? We have a teacher, and I guess I can say this now, I hope you cut it out of here, that um, <clears throat> for the number of years, it's the same activity consistently every year because that's what you feel safe with. And I've been in that building for 28 years, broken. But when you come, when a student comes back and they say, oh, my daughter was in that class, oh, we did that. Well, something's wrong. Yeah. When you do the same silhouette, so how does the it same. how does it go from being Montika's agenda to being everyone's agenda? It's hard to educate people who don't want to move out of that comfort zone. Hmm. It's hard to say there are other picture books in here. Hey, how about this picture book? How about this picture book? And so what I think of myself now is try to find a way to just give books to the library. Oh. so that they can process them through and put them on a shelf. Now, I haven't actually went back through to see if they're actually on the shelf yet. <laughs> Where'd this book come from? I don't, yes. I don't know. And then I try to incorporate those books in my classroom, and then I have uh, t teacher's assistants in Paris. When they're working with kids, they can come in and grab books off my shelf to read 
with yeah. kids and things uh, like that. Keely, we talked last night. You have a pretty extensive classroom library. Yes. You teach middle school. You explain that and why you do have such an extensive classroom Absolutely. library. Um, our middle school does not have a librarian. We have a huge library that is largely empty which as an English teacher and an avid reader breaks my heart. So I made it my kind of charge to have a very robust classroom library that includes literature from a lot of different authors of color, different um, LGBTQ topics, all sorts of topics that I know my middle school students are living through. Um, and there's just not enough literature in our school library to support that. Um, I do make sure that students have to have parental permission to check books out of my library with the understanding very explicitly laid out that I do not censor the books in my library. Um, and the students need to have that, that right to choose what they want to read. Um, and that way I know if I have a student who comes to me who's struggling with you know, sexual identity, I have books I know I can put into their hand as, that are gonna be a mirror for them. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, you send that letter out at the beginning of the year? I do, it goes with my syllabus. And what, uh, if any response do you get? Do you get any pushback? Um, you know what? It's been really amazing. And we, I also have a very, very diverse student body. And our school is largely um, multiracial, as how our students identify. And I've gotten notes back from parents on the syllabus, or I've talked to them at conferences, and they say things like, thank goodness, I don't want to shelter my child. They need to be aware of what the real world is like. I'm so thankful that you do this for them. Um, I've gotten very few parents who give me any sort of pushback. Well, because I think maybe I have a misperception, but I, I would feel like the assumption would be you would face pushback, but, you, but you're saying no. I thought so too. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't so far. The, the pushback I've gotten, amazingly enough, have been from um, colleagues. Uh, we were talking, we do literature circles where students get a choice. And uh, the four of us sit down at a table and we kind of talk about books we're going to use. We did pick a book um, this fall that does have an openly gay character. And one of my um, colleagues pretty much said straight out, um, I will not touch that with a 10-foot pole. Um, so she, uh, you know, she kind of stepped away from it and someone else decided they were going to be more than willing to teach it. So this, this brings up an interesting question in my head. And any, this is really for all three of you. Um, so I'm, I'm detecting a particular worldview from, from, from the people who are talking right now. I wonder if you do encounter colleagues who are uncomfortable, um, whether it be with issues of race or sexual identity, uh, orientation or, or gender identity, um, how do you, and you have your kind of deeply seated opinions and, and, and beliefs, and they do too, how do you continue to work with them and how do you continue to talk with them um, and, and, and still try to educate kids together. I think a lot of time it has to do with their product of their environment. When you've come from a uh, predominantly Caucasian town, you go to a predominantly Caucasian university, and you get your first teaching job, and you're lumped into a very multicultural setting, you're out of your comfort zone already. And so it's hard to even, to bridge that gap between me and that teacher who has not even probably sat at the same table with a person of color. Let's know now we're in a faculty meeting, and now you're sitting beside me. Now we're on a committee. Now I have these books that I have never read before, and these kids want me to now introduce them to this topic. How do they handle that? And do you, do you have empathy for that? Do you have empathy for someone in that position? No, because no one has empathy for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that to be truthful, because no one gives me a ticket of an excuse, because I'm African-American in a Caucasian environment as an educator. They expect me to step up to the plate. I should be the bigger person. But no one gives that person, they give that ticket to you because you're Caucasian, because you don't know, but then it's, it's a flip side to, my, to me. And that's what I don't hold them, I hold them accountable mm -hmm. to that too. You're responsible too, just like I yeah. am. Cross the bridge. Nathan? Um, at my school, um, 
I, I wish we had um, maybe a little more diverse um, staff, like we're all, mm -hmm. for the most part, white, Caucasian. Um, but I do see some pushback from some educators when it comes to issues of like gender identity. Mm -hmm. And um, I think at the end of the day, I mean, you are a public school teacher, you are working with the public, you are there for your students' own best needs, not your personal beliefs. And um, luckily our administration's been, um, again, very supportive of the students. And I know that with staff members who've maybe expressed those concerns, um, they have those conversations outside of the staff meetings mm -hmm. <laughs> and try to work with those teachers. And so I really do appreciate that. Uh, final question wrapping up this, this segment. Again, I'll go back to books. I ended the, uh, the last segment on a question about books. So what book out there, um, maybe to put you on the spot, what book out there that you've taught or given to kids have, have you felt has really um, either opened a door or opened a window or put up a mirror for a particular student or group of students that you just, you really remember as doing that effectively? Um, one book that I teach my sophomores, um, depending on the year and whether or not I feel the class it is appropriate for them, um, is Flowers for Algernon. Um, since um, we are a 1A school, we have a very small student population and you know they come from lots of different diverse backgrounds and Flowers for Algernon deals with um, the treatment of people with exceptionalities and um, sometimes the kids who are um, who struggle with reading often resonate with like Charlie's dilemmas with reading and writing and wanting to improve himself. And a lot of times even the, the kids who really love reading, they also take an appreciation from that book. And we also practice those social skills like, you know, how do we talk about um, handicaps without saying, you know, oh, he's a handicapped person. No, it's, he's a person with a disability or a person with, and that people first language. And it's mm -hmm. always been a very positive experience. I guess I try to show them books that just doesn't show uh, hardship to African-Americans, show them how the Japanese were treated by the Americans during the Japanese period, just showing them different literature from different points of view with different groups of people, not just so they see things as black and white, but showing them that other side of empathy for other races of people. And mine would probably be The House on Mango Street. Um, because that is, is very um, diverse from a lot of the other things that we read in class and it has a lot that you can talk about with your students about those, those racial relations and how that um, both defines them and it allows them to kind of see how, how different things are elsewhere, um, but still the same too. Uh, well, thank you so much to all the panelists who have participated. Uh, stay tuned. We end each of our shows with a segment we call Kids These Days. We will do that up here. But first, the credits, no wrong answers. We should say as a podcast that retains total editorial control, what our teachers today say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. When you go to our Facebook page, you can log on and uh, you can like us, you can share us, and you can also log into a community feedback doc that we have that um, allows you to give feedback for our episodes. Also, ask questions for upcoming Ask the Teachers segments that we do on our podcast. You can find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe, which many of you have done today. Leave us a review as well. It helps just log in with your Apple um, stuff, which I can never remember, but hopefully you can remember yours. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world, so if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now for our ending segment, Kids These Days, where our teachers tell us what's trending among their kids. 
April, what are your kids into these days? Kids these days have more than one cell phone. They have the cell phone they talk to their girl on and the cell phone they keep their music and their games on. All right, the sign of the apocalypse. There we go, okay. <laughs> Keely, what are your kids into? Sharpie tattoos on every exposed surface of their bodies. Yeah. Gross. All right, Mont Montika, what are your kids into? Ours are into those little fidget gadgets. And uh, the other thing to be trendy is wearing your hoodie, regardless if you're cold or hot, just to put that hoodie up and snuggle up. Can they do both at the same time? Yes. Play with the fidget spinner and wear the hoodie. Okay. And uh, Nathan, what are your kids into? Uh, my freshmen are very positive human beings, and so every Friday they like to do a thing called Free Hug Friday, where they just hug everybody at the start of class. Aww. I like how you qualify that with my freshmen. Are, are... <laughs> All the other greats, no, but my freshmen. Well, thanks to our teachers uh, today, Montika Allen Atkinson, April Pamatiski, Nathan Whitman, and Keely Tolbert. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to the Kansas Association of Teachers of English, and especially to Steve Mock and Stacey Chestnut. Kate, give it up for yourselves. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, be nice to your teachers.